previously on Chillingworth. From that moment on, the Chillingworth investigation became Lovern's obsession. Hello, test one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, India. We, we knew if we could get something on tape, we was on solid ground then, because a person cannot uh, deny his own voice when he hears it on tape. Without the money, I am going to because I got no fucking reason to stay around. Now, I won't kill anyone here, or with you or Jim involved in the least. But I'm going to kill him. It might take me a month. It might take me six months. You can't wait that long. Welcome back to Chillingworth. We've been racking our brains to think what should be the opening statement. Like drawing a curtain back, you know. Yeah. It should be by Tiffany, because this is such a unique situation. We're not if I had this is a Hitchcock production here. It no. is, it is a damn. I wish I had brought my damn movie camera. Henry Lovern was entering law enforcement's terra incognita. He had what he considered space-age technology at his disposal. The challenge would be figuring out a way to use that technology to record Floyd, Joe, or Bobby telling Yenzer how they killed the Chillingworths. Somehow, his informant, Jim Yenzer, was going to have to manipulate his friends into talking about committing the murders. Lover knew that might be impossible. Floyd had once essentially admitted to Yenzer that he carried out the crime after downing several cocktails. But since then, he'd always told Yenzer he was just talking out of his ass on that boozy night. Joe had never said a word to Yenzer about the murders. Lover knew that if Yenzer started asking questions about the crimes over highballs at a bar, his friends might piece together what Yenzer was up to. Hey, Floyd, please tell me again about the time you drowned Judge Chillingworth. Yenzer would have to have a credible pretext for starting a conversation about the events of June 15, 1955. Lovern was a creative, imaginative person, though. He evaluated what he'd learned about Yenzer and what he knew about Floyd and Joe's personalities. He considered what might put them at ease. With all this in mind, he concocted scenarios in which Yenzer might get Floyd, Joe, and even Bobby to talk. Lovern decided to start with Floyd. To set up the first attempt, Lovern enlisted the help of Lawrence Simon, Judge Chillingworth's brother-in-law, an attorney. Simon had admirably served as the family's liaison with law enforcement since Curtis and Marjorie were killed. At this point, Phil O'Connell was collaborating with Lovern in the development of his investigative strategy with Yenzer. Here's what they did. At the heart of Lovern's plan was his awareness of Yenzer's incessant drive to generate income without having to work for the man. Lovern and state attorney Phil O'Connell asked Simon to offer a $10,000 reward to anyone who found the Chillingworth's remains. Simon agreed. That would be about 100 grand today. The Palm Beach Post publicized the announcement. 
Yenzer's first undercover assignment was to convince Floyd that he really believed they could get the reward money. Yenzer would ask Floyd to tell him where the Chillingworth's bodies were located so that he could then inform Lauren Simon, collect the reward, and split it with Floyd. Think about this. The idea was three years after the killers threw Judge and Mrs. Chillingworth overboard, the remains could still be found. A diver could locate the Chillingworths and bring them to the surface. Yeah, but Lever knew that Floyd would see it as another one of Yenzer's harebrained schemes to get his mitts on some dough. It wouldn't be such an unusual thing for Floyd. Lovern decided that Yenzer's house in Miami would be the best location to record a conversation between Floyd and Yenzer about the Chillingworth murders. So he and another agent set up three microphones in Yenzer's place, and Yenzer invited Floyd over one night in the summer of 1959. To make this all work, Lovern needed to enlist Yenzer's wife, Skeeter. The petite-spirited and intelligent young woman agreed to play a role in the plan. Well, my husband had quite a, a controlling factor of my faculties, I think. You know, he, he, he convinced me that if I didn't pull through, he would be dead. When Floyd arrived at the Yenzer's house in Miami with his wife Peggy and their little boy, Skeeter asked Peggy if she and her son could go with her to the airport to pick up her relative which of course was a ruse. Lovern and his colleague listened from another room through their headphones as the reel-to-reel -reel recorder took everything in. As Peggy and Skeeter were leaving the men alone to chat, Peggy began to admire Skeeter's lovely drapes and started to rub her hands along the fabric. Peggy looked at the drapes and she went to touch the material on the drapes, and she was just inches away from the microphone. Skeeter was scared out of her mind. She knew that their good friend Floyd had murdered at least three people and wouldn't hesitate to kill everybody in the room. But Peggy found the mics, and he realized that they'd been set up. Somehow, Skeeter kept it together and told Peggy that they had to rush to the airport, which kept Peggy from finding the microphone. Skeeter Yenzer's presence of mind might have prevented a world-class bloodbath. He would have killed us. He would have just buried us. Once their wives had gone to the airport, Yenzer began to talk about the offer that had appeared in the Palm Beach Post. Unlike the night a year earlier when Floyd got hammered and spilled his guts about the Chillingworths and other lesser crimes he'd committed, this time he had the discipline to deny that he was involved in what Joe referred to as the C-Case. Next, Lovern decided to try getting Bobby Lincoln to admit his role in the Chillingworth murders on tape. This was going to be a serious challenge for Lovern. Lincoln was one of the smartest ones of, of all the people that they interviewed. 
Jenser arranged to meet Bobby at his pool hall in Rivera Beach to talk about a bogus proposal for a new Bolita deal. And the way that Jim knew Bobby Lincoln was from the pool hall that Lincoln had. Jim used to shoot pool. Yenzer asked Bobby if they could step outside to talk about his fabricated idea. While Yenzer was giving his pitch to Bobby, Lovern was hiding in the trunk of Yenzer's car with a reel-to-reel tape recorder. He had to breathe through a hose to avoid inhaling carbon monoxide, which of course could have killed him. Bobby had no idea that he was standing 10 feet away from a detective who knew all about the murders he committed. But Lincoln had a dog, and Lovern was in the trunk, and he got a cramp in his leg, and he started moving in the trunk of the car, and the dog never stopped barking at the trunk of the car. Jim was a fast thinker, knowing what Lincoln was thinking that there's somebody in the trunk of the car. So he clumsily wrapped up his sham proposal, said goodnight, hopped back in his car, and peeled out as Lovern bounced around in the trunk. Lincoln went in and told his wife there was somebody in the trunk of that car. And I, I, think, I think I know that we are being had. He told Hose Apple, and Hose Apple uh, told uh, Jim that the time that he went to see Bobby Lincoln, that he had said that there was somebody in the trunk of the car. Imagine that. Just imagine that. At that point, Yenzer began to realize how dangerous this mission really was. Lovern's inventive surveillance techniques didn't produce any incriminating recordings of Floyd or Bobby. Neither one would confide in Yenzer about the Chillingworths. Lovern began to fear that even though he knew they'd drowned the judge and his wife in the Atlantic Ocean, that they'd executed Lou Jean Harvey, Floyd, Joe, and Bobby might never be convicted of the crimes. President Simoza of Nicaragua, who was recently host to the U.S. Vice President Nixon, is the victim of a would-be assassin's bullets. The assailant was killed on the spot. President Simoza was gravely wounded. Taken to hospital in the canal zone, he was attended by doctors rushed from the United States. Rafael Cabrera, a young Nicaraguan coffee exporter who'd gone to prep school in the States, like many of his idealistic compatriots, had committed himself to overthrowing the regime of Luis Somoza. Cabrera had amassed an arsenal of rifles, mortars, machine guns, and grenades, and stored them in a home close to Coral Gables' famed Miracle Mile, a boulevard lined with posh boutiques. The weapons were to be shipped to Nicaragua to arm the rebels trying to oust Somoza. This wasn't the dictator who was assassinated in Panama in 1956. That was his father. Nor was it the Somoza who was bazooka to death in Paraguay. That was his brother. In May, Floyd heard about the arsenal from his sleazy friend, Barney Barnett. 
Floyd immediately planned a heist of the stockpile. He asked Yenzer to tag along. Yenzer, of course, knew that Lovern would want to know about the deal. After his disappointing attempts to record Floyd recounting the murders he committed on tape in detail, Lovern now had a chance to arrest Floyd for a hardcore crime. If Floyd was convicted of stealing $60,000 worth of weapons, he'd be facing around 15 years in a federal pen. And Lovern would have the leverage he'd been dreaming of. Lovern was well aware of the degree of difficulty that he was facing, and so was Jim Yenzer. After all, his friend Floyd was a war hero who reveled in the numbers of Germans that he had killed in Italy. This was the man they were going to bring in. On the night of the heist, Lovern and his squadron of Miami police watched from a distance as Floyd and Yenzer pulled up to the house in a Hertz truck, broke into the house, and loaded the arsenal into the vehicle. Floyd, an accomplished assassin, was sitting in his truck, crammed with scores of machine guns and hundreds of hand grenades. As Floyd was about to leave the scene, the officers surrounded the truck. Floyd stepped out of the truck, waving a handgun, yelling, I'm a cop, don't shoot. One of the policemen got a little jumpy and opened fire with his Tommy gun, a la Babyface Nelson, and riddled the truck with bullets. There was one policeman who uh, had a machine gun. He was nervous and, and let loose. And uh, Jim was running and one of the bullets uh, uh, hit him on the forehead, left forehead. One of the bullets grazed Yenzer. The police allowed Yenzer to get away because they knew he was an informant. Officers cuffed Floyd and took him downtown. Lovern waited anxiously as Floyd's trial for the arms theft began a few months later. He knew if Floyd was convicted in the weapons case, he'd be facing a long federal sentence and might be willing to give up Joe Peel in exchange for a deal. Then Lovern could go after Bobby too, and he'd have what he needed to get a conviction of Joe, regardless of the doctrine of corpus delecti. This would be the only way to bring Joe down without finding the victim's bodies. In spite of his attorney's skill in the courtroom, it looked very bleak for Floyd in his trial. Several officers testified. They described how Floyd and an unidentified man had pulled up to the house in the Gables in a Hertz rental truck, broken into the garage, and loaded up the weapons. They all confidently pointed him out from the witness stand. Ultimately, the jury found him guilty and sentenced him to 15 years. Lover now had the leverage he needed to get Floyd to sing like a canary. At that moment, for the first time since he arrived in Florida, Floyd had to envision a trip upstate to the Huskow, the big house. And then Floyd experienced what under different circumstances might be considered divine intervention. 
an eager, well-meaning, but know-it-all bailiff, answered a juror's question about sentencing options while the judge was in his chambers. He was only trying to be helpful, and he was helpful, to Floyd. He should have kept his pie hole shut. His statement gave Floyd's attorney solid grounds for an appeal. He filed for a retrial, and Floyd arranged to get out on bond with his friend and confidant, Jim Wilbur, a.k.a. P.O., a smart, slippery West Palm Beach bondsman who swore like a sailor. But not just any sailor. He swore like the most profane sailor to ever ply the seven seas. Levern blew a gasket. He would now have to wait several months for the appeal and then possibly a few more for a new trial. At the same time, he believed the next jury would have to convict Floyd again. And in the meantime, he might be able to get Floyd to finally talk to Yenzer or do something equally stupid that would give Lovern what he needed. Lovern still felt pretty good about his prospects. Floyd was out on bail with his appeal and possibly a new trial looming in the distance. To Floyd, though, that was no reason to sit on his ass and mope. He figured he would seize the day. He was anxious to try something new with Joe. Even though they hadn't spent a lot of time together as of late, the chemistry that drove them to commit a perpetual series of brazen criminal acts was still there. Something compelled Floyd and Joe to walk together, hand in hand, as they thieved, maimed, and murdered. While both of them kept pursuing ever more ambitious, illicit enterprises, Floyd and Joe did this with a drastically distinct outlook. With the consequences of the arms deal and his more serious crimes looming over him, Floyd still imagined that he'd find a way to remain free indefinitely. On the other hand, in Joe's case, the prospects of the long arm of the law bringing him in kept him awake at night. Whatever it was that motivated the two men, the new deal that they began to pursue in the late summer of 1959 was irresistible. Floyd had heard about an amazing opportunity that Florida's legislature had clumsily created when it passed a law designed to help businesses to borrow money. The law offered him the chance to establish a new venture, a venture that promised to surpass anything else he and Joe concocted before, something that could earn them more money than all of their other schemes combined. It was essentially a classic Ponzi scheme. At its heart was a Florida statute that allowed financial institutions to loan money at a very high interest rate that normally would be considered usury, if the loan was very short term and the borrower was using the proceeds to buy inventory. At least that's what they were telling their investors. The company they were creating wouldn't actually make these high interest loans. How exactly did that work? You never use the word investor in your address because that gets you SEC trouble. Yeah. He's loaning you the money. And these are old people, retired people, a bunch of old people. 
young people, people save the fucking money, honest citizens. They kept all the money the investors put in, depriving many of them any chance for a happy and healthy retirement. Floyd and Joe recruited a team. Beyond their radio and television pitchman Bob Sills, they brought in Peggy's in-law, Jack Crane, who was married to Peggy's niece. And Joe brought in his new protege, Don Miles, a plumbing contractor from Melbourne, where Joe now lived with his family. Joe, for whatever reason, placed a lot of trust in Miles, but Floyd and Yenzer saw Miles as a dim-witted stooge who might run to the cops if things started to get hairy. Yeah, now, Don is stupid. Now, you start messing with him, unless yeah. you bury him, and you might, this guy just might run to the cops. He's stupid, though, yeah. and he's oh, more afraid of You're right, you're right, you're right. They opened offices in Orlando, Daytona Beach, and Melbourne. They named the business Insured Capital Corporation. Floyd and Joe left their good friend Bobby Lincoln out of the deal. It's possible they just didn't want to share in the bounty they expected to enjoy once they duped enough people. And Bobby was about to go to federal prison for three years for the moonshine conviction. In late 1959, Floyd and Peggy moved up to Orlando to run the insured capital operation. I, I opened that one up over there with $1,200. $1,200 fucking dollars. You set up a fucking finance school. Nice front. You've seen the office over in Orlando? I put in $70,000 worth of fucking furniture with no down payment. Two IBM electric typewriters. Had a fucking carpenter come in and put mahogany sheet panel private office, $500 carpet on the fucking office floor. No fucking money down. I'm a finance company. I don't want terms, I want 30 days. I opened this office with $1,200 cash. That was Floyd gushing about how impressive Insured Capital's headquarters were and marveling about how easy it was to dupe greedy people into handing over money. Joe finally had reason to be hopeful about his future again. Money was flowing into Insured Capital Corporation from unsuspecting investors. He was beginning to like his new home on the space coast of Florida. Another former West Palm resident, Sheriff's Deputy Ralph Clark, had also moved up to Melbourne. He'd taken a job with the Brevard County Sheriff's Department, which was booming because of the development of Cape Canaveral. My name is uh, Charlotte Swan Clark, and uh, I am married to Ralph Edward Clark. I came to Bavard County. I, people were coming in from all over the country. It was a very friendly place because we were from different states, different places, and uh, right there in Bavard, everybody was interested in beating uh, Russia to the moon and beating Russia in any aspect of the space race, as they called it. About 40 miles from Ralph and Charlotte, Joe and Peggy were living large in a hotel in Orlando. Floyd's appeal in the arms case hadn't yet been heard. He was a little nervous about his chances, but he thought he might get a new trial and be acquitted. Henry Levern didn't quite see it that way. 
He believed Floyd would be sentenced to 15 years in the not-so-distant future. But he didn't know for sure if federal investigators could get a conviction against insured capital. Floyd and Joe had arranged for everything to be put in the names of their two patsies, Jack Crane and Don Miles. Joe began to study Floyd's arms case appeal very closely as the date of the appellate court decision approached. Joe began to see Floyd's prospects exactly the same way Henry Lovern did. Floyd was going to lose, and he'd be sentenced to a long term in a federal penitentiary. Joe couldn't let this happen because of what it would mean for him. Joe believed that even Floyd, a career criminal who believed in all the classic codes of silence, might give in to a prosecutor's pressure and negotiate a plea deal, which could end up sending Joe himself to the chair for the Chillingworth murders. Lovern and his colleagues at the Florida Sheriff's Bureau convinced bank regulators and the SEC to delay seeking indictments of the men involved in the insured capital scheme. He wanted to see his meticulously crafted strategy in the Chillingworth case play out. Even after all the disappointing efforts, Lovern knew his informant Jim Yenzer still had a lot of potential. It occurred to Lovern that if he could damage Joe and Floyd's friendship, destroy their mutual trust, they might succumb to their selfish instincts and betray each other. Lovern's plan was to erode the loyalty between Joe and Floyd, to sever the bond that had existed between the two men for years. He knew that if he could accomplish this, each of the men would be more likely to implicate the other in order to negotiate a plea deal. So Lovern decided to have Yenzer throw everything he had into convincing Joe that Floyd had become a threat to him. With his recklessness, his ill-conceived murder of Harvey, and his impetuous attempt to steal the truckload of weapons, and in spite of the risk this posed his informant, Yenzer embraced the challenge. Yenzer approached Joe as often as he could about the danger that Floyd was posing to him. So for all of these reasons, I'm firmly convinced that he has some plan whereby if things go wrong for him and he gets nailed, that you're going to the chair. Yenzer went on and on about how Floyd's actions were going to put Joe in the electric chair. Yenzer was way more convincing than Lovern could have hoped. As a result of Yenzer's ongoing campaign, Joe began to question his relationship with Floyd. Joe began to ask himself, maybe I should distance myself from Floyd. Maybe I should have Floyd killed. Joe contacted Yenzer and very unapologetically told him, Floyd has to die. And then he asked, can I hire you to kill him? Yenzer was the one who'd convinced Joe that he was going to end up in the electric chair if he didn't do something about Floyd. So Yenzer wasn't shocked to hear Joe's offer. He told Joe he'd have to mull it over, which meant he needed to talk to Levern about this development. 
Why did Joe think Yenzer would do it? Maybe it was because of Yenzer's involvement in the Hal Gray deal. At any rate, Yenzer reported the offer to Lovern, who immediately recognized its value in his efforts to bring Joe and Floyd down. Lovern could now pin a murder conspiracy case on Joe. After talking it over with Lovern, Yenzer arranged to meet with Joe and agreed to do Joe's bidding in exchange for cash, of course. Yeah, he actually was going to make the payments for a hit in installments. Even though he had very high hopes for Yenzer, even though he trusted that Yenzer could actually carry out the task, Joe wanted a backup plan. So he devised a two-pronged approach to get rid of Floyd. If his plan to have Joe killed didn't bear fruit, he could get Floyd out of his life by making him go far, far away. Incredibly, all this was going on while Joe and Floyd were operating their most lucrative deal ever, the insured capital company scheme, which was going forward swimmingly. They had successfully built hundreds of naive Floridians out of their life savings, and the prospects for expansion into other cities were very bright. Motivated by his intensifying fear that Floyd would eventually be forced to confess about the Chillingworth murders, Joe sat Floyd down and walked him through his assessment of the appeal. Joe managed to convince Floyd that he was doomed in the arms case. He also suggested that he might be implicated in the Harvey murder. He urged Floyd to flee the country and lay low for a while. Specifically, he recommended that Floyd go to Brazil, which had no extradition treaty with the U.S. Did Joe really think Floyd would take his advice and move to Brazil? Would Floyd really leave behind his loving wife and child to live in a sweltering South American country where he couldn't speak a word of the language? Not even a curse word. Unlike most Americans, Floyd knew a lot about Brazil and what was happening there. He could find Brazil on a map. He knew Brazilians spoke Portuguese. And unlike most Americans, Floyd knew that Brazil was the country of the future. Most of all, Floyd knew that Brazil was a place where Henry Lovern and the Florida Sheriff's Bureau could never get to him. If you know anything about Brazil, and become a multi-millionaire. It's bigger than the United States. Most people don't realize this. Yeah. Rio de Janeiro is, is, is almost four million people. That's as big as New York was before the war. Remember, Brazil ain't no little banana republic. Chillingworth was created by Texas Crew Productions and Nighthouse Films. It's produced by John Moss, myself, Jonathan Payne, Rick Sykowski, and Brad Bernstein.